Well, congregation, the year is A.D. 258. Only eight years after the Roman Decius sought to exterminate all who refused to pledge allegiance to his sovereign rule, untold Christians were actually killed. And there's a man named Lawrence who is one of the seven deacons who were serving in Rome at the time. His task is to oversee the church's money, their finances, and distributions to the poor. In August, the news hits. Valerian, the successor of Decius, has issued a new and chilling edict. All bishops, priests, and deacons must be rounded up and killed. So Lawrence is soon taken before the magistrate. The offer? Surrender the treasure of the church and you will be freed. The deacon agrees. And he says, I only need three days to retrieve it. Leaving the court, Lawrence wastes no time. First, he takes the church's money and he puts it in safer hands. And then he gathers together all of the sick, all of the aged, all of the poor, the widowed, and the orphaned. And at last, he returns to the court, pitiful band in tow. The magistrate demands an explanation. So Lawrence responds. Sir, I have brought you what you asked for. And then, gesturing toward the people he had gathered, he declares, these are the treasures of the church. Well, one of the, one of the things that we're working on right now uh, at Church of the King is something that uh, we're calling a leadership development training class. Now, this is going to be a class for all the men in this congregation, and even men who are not part of this church. And in this class, we plan to cover selected readings like the one I just read to you of of various types. Uh, Some of these are going to be philosophical readings, others theological, but mostly the readings are about things like Christian character and kingdom perspective and the use of our gifts and the development of necessary skills for leadership in the body of Christ. And hopefully when all of these things are put together and the class is underway, we'll begin to see the men of this congregation growing, maturing in their perspective and what it means to be truly great in the kingdom of God. And with that change of perspective, the hope is that all of us would begin to live out the principles of leadership that we find in God's word. And so whether you think that uh, maybe you're called to be an officer of this church or not, I would encourage you to join the class anyways, because regardless of your particular station, as a man, God calls you to be a leader in some capacity. And so it's critical that you understand exactly what that looks like, exactly what that entails in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, in one way or another, not because it's a topical sermon, but simply because this is where we land in the process of expository preaching today, This passage gives to us something that we might call lesson number one in that leadership class. So here we have the Lord Jesus Christ. He is teaching the disciples what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. Looking at our text, we see that the reason this came up in the first place is that the disciples were engaged in a conversation. In fact, it was more than a conversation. Mark says uh, that it was a dispute So the disciples were having a debate. And the topic, which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Look at verses 
33 and 34. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Now, one of the things that we should notice here is that when Jesus asked this question, none of them wanted to give the answer. And Mark said that they would not say a word. They remained silent. And so right away, you can see that everyone already knew that this entire conversation was inappropriate. This entire conversation was unfitting for the disciples of Jesus Christ. And so now as you're you're putting yourselves in that house and maybe at that table while this conversation is going on, you can almost feel the embarrassment that they were feeling when Jesus confronts them. You mean Jesus knows what we were talking about on the way? Each one of these disciples is probably thinking, you mean he knows exactly what I said in this conversation when I was rivaling my brother for the preeminence? Among the disciples, and how I tried to exalt myself above other men. This is what you call a blushworthy moment, right? The disciples are embarrassed. And as I think back to my childhood, I remember something that my Auntie Phyllis taught me when I was a boy. She said, If you think you'll be embarrassed if someone else finds out, then don't do it and don't say it. So here they are. And Jesus is confronting them about their perspective. The disciples are obviously operating by the principles of this world rather than the principles of the kingdom of God. And you see, the world can see no other way to greatness and to exaltation than through power and rank, things like wealth and reputation, to get the greatness that they desire. They have to get the crown, they have to get the throne. They have to secure the high position for themselves. And if you remember, this is actually something that even James and John engage in. They tried to do this. In fact, they tried to secure these things through what we might call political maneuvering. And by the way, uh, just as an exhortation, don't do that. Uh, Don't resort to political maneuvering. You don't have to do that in the kingdom of God. All you have to do is serve the Lord Jesus Christ from your heart and Jesus himself will promote you to the place that he wants you to be. But James and John didn't seem to understand that. And this again makes me think back to my personal experience. When I was in the Bay Area, I worked for a tree company called S.P. McClenahan. I was there in 2011. This is a company that had been in existence for 100 years, from 1911, and they were celebrating 100 years in 2011. And I love this company. It was a great company. They always provided you all the tools, all the resources that you needed, all the training. But there was something about this company that struck me, and that is the only way you could ever get a raise is if your foreman went to the owner personally and asked him to give you a raise. But here's the rule in this company. That request had to be unsolicited by the person who wanted the raise. It had to come from the foreman himself. Well, you can imagine what that did to the work environment at S.P. McClenahan. People learned that what they were supposed to do is focus on doing a good job and leave all the political maneuvering 
aside, those who are faithful in the work that they were given to do were promoted and exalted in due time. Now, before we get to James and John, because they did the opposite, consider Joseph for just a second, because he brings in a contrast to this political maneuvering. In Genesis chapter 39, verse 3, tells us that when Joseph was working in Potiphar's home, he just did a good job at everything that he put his hand to. He did a good job because the Lord was with him and he was with the Lord. In verse 3, it says, His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. Now, of course, when, uh, when the master saw that, the Bible says he made him overseer of his house and all that he had, he put under Joseph's authority. So that just gives you a little bit of a contrast as to the perspective and the approach that we need to have. Now, looking at Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 26, I want you to hear uh, the approach that James and John took on this occasion. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Now, in order to understand this, this context, you have to know that James and John are the cousins of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they are Zebedee's sons, and their mother is Jesus's aunt. Okay, so this isn't just like getting a good recommendation from the side. This is real family politics that are taking place here. And he says to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, do you, not, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And then here's the funny thing in verse 24. And when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased at the two brothers but Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. And then in verse 26, he says, yet it shall not be so among you. Now that ties us right back to our passage. Jesus is trying to give the disciples the right perspective. He wants to show him what it means to be great in the kingdom of God, what it means to be a real leader. In verse 35 of our text, it says that he sat down, he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now here Jesus is continuing in the style of his paradoxical teaching. You remember back in Mark chapter 8 when he foretold about the sufferings that he would endure? He told the disciples that whosoever tries to save his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life for his sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. So there's that paradoxical teaching. Well, here Jesus continues in the same style and he gives them another paradox. Essentially, he says, if anyone wants to be first, he must become the last. If anyone wants to be great, 
He must become the servant of all. So last time when we looked at Mark chapter 8, we saw that the way to the crown is through the cross. And the lesson of that paradox, the lesson there was that greatness comes through identifying with Jesus Christ and suffering for his name. So it's greatness through suffering. But this time, the lesson is a little bit different. The lesson here is greatness through serving. Greatness through serving. Now, this concept of greatness through serving is not a concept I know that we naturally embrace. And so today I want us to consider at least two specific things about this concept. The first one is about motive, and we'll take that from the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ in general. The second is about direction, the direction of our service, and for that we'll look at the details of our text. A third consideration, uh, though we should probably be making this observation as we go to the first two, is that both of these things, the right motive and the right direction, are seen in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. These aspects of kingdom service are at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't forget that. Keep your eyes and keep your mind constantly going back to Christ because he's the one who exemplifies these principles. So never never forget that. Now, first of all, in order for you to be great in the kingdom of God, your service must be done with a motive that is pure, a motive that is pure. And so here we can ask the question, what motivates you to serve. Because the truth is that the only service that can ever be acceptable to God is that which is done for his glory. And what that means is that if the motive behind your service is simply to receive some level of personal recognition in the eyes of men, then you're really not serving God. You're actually only serving yourself. So you have everything backwards if that's your motive. And obviously this kind of a thing can manifest itself in many different ways. We don't have time in this message to cover all the different ways. But the principle that you need to have in order to gauge this is given by the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4. There Jesus says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, here's the principle, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now, obviously, we could could make that statement die the death of a thousand qualifications, because in other places, Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But you have to understand the proper context in which these things should be applied. Obviously, there's something called public service in the church and in the world. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about motive. If you are doing the work in order to be seen by men, then you are only serving yourself. And when you get the recognition, you have received your reward. 
That's all you get because you get nothing else from God because God is not impressed. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, am I more concerned about pleasing God or impressing other people? You see, the motive of our service really does matter. Another passage for this is Colossians chapter 2. Nope, Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. And this context is specifically about bond servants, uh, but it's perfect because a bond servant is exactly what we are. If you're a Christian, then you are the bondservant of Jesus Christ. So everything that Paul says here applies to you and it applies to me. He says, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. But then he says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So the first thing that we have to consider is the motive of our service. It must be for the glory of God. It must be for the reputation of Jesus Christ. It must be to please God by the way that we live. The second thing that we need to see is is something about the direction of our service. It must also be for the good, that is, the genuine good, of other people. So in order for you to be great in the kingdom of God, your service must be directed to the needs of other people. And here, what this means is that the basic orientation, the basic orientation of our service is toward the lowly and the needy. And so we can say, obviously, that the scope, right? So think about grabbing a a gun, the scope of your service is broad. It's, it's, it's huge. It covers every demographic of human being possible, the rich and the poor, the weak and the strong, right? So the scope is broad, but we need to have a downward tilt so that the crosshairs are aiming low to the ground because the last thing we want to do is have this big, broad scope and look over those who are lowly and those who are needy. And the principle here is very simple. Think about this exhortation. Serving upwards is always very easy and it's very rewarding. But serving downwards is more difficult and far less rewarding. You see, what the world says is that if you want to be great, what you should do is start hanging out with great people. You need to shake off the weak people in your life. You need to shake off the needy people in your life. Those who are there to just take from you, shake them off, leave them in the dust. It's very easy to serve those who are living above you. Because by serving them, you're putting yourself closer to their level. Isn't that true? That's exactly what the disciples, James and John, are trying to do with Jesus. They know that Jesus is a great king. And so their desire is to be his number one and number two servants. Because if their servant's number one and number two, then they get to sit on the left hand and the right hand of his throne. As high as Jesus is exalted, they're exalted right there with him. So to serve upwards is very easy and it's very rewarding. But there's something else that the disciples don't quite understand, and that is that Jesus does not measure greatness in that kind of way. 
And we can see that in two different ways. First of all, just consider Jesus' general teaching in the Word of God. There's a passage in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus tells us how we should go about serving other people, and he directs us toward the exact people that he wants us to serve. Verses 12 through 14. Then he also said to them who invited him, When you give a dinner or when you give a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors. Why? He says, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, as you think about what Jesus says here, you should keep in mind that one of the qualifications of being an elder and a deacon or even just any kind of lay leader in the church is a love for hospitality. Elders and other leaders should be the kind of people who are willing to open up their homes and to open up their tables to those who are in need. And and here's the point. Not every dinner has to be with your friends. It's easy to serve your friends. But not every dinner you throw has to be with your friends. Sometimes that dinner should be for those who simply need a hot meal, someone who needs a shoulder to lean on, someone who needs support in a difficult time. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered the possibility of entertaining strangers, as the scripture tells us to do? Easy to entertain friends, but a stranger? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 says, Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. But notice here that it's not just the general teaching of Jesus. It's also the specific teaching of our text, and I want to show you that from the passage we're looking at. Look at verses 36 and 37. You can see what's going on. It says, Then he took a little child, and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You know, so often when people think of this passage, they confuse it with some other passages uh, in the gospel records. They just assume that Jesus um, is, is using this little child as a model for his disciples to imitate. He does that in, in a different place, but that's not what this passage is about. Notice here that the child is not a model for the disciples to follow. That's not the point of this text. In fact, if you do a little bit of digging and you do a little bit of research into the history and culture of the day, what you find is that the people in that day had no glamorized ideas about the children. In fact, anyone here with even a biblical worldview knows that children are not always a model for virtue. In terms of character, they still need a lot of training. They need discipling. They need correcting They need maturity. They need growth. Many of you parents know that your children are not very patient. Your children are not very kind because they don't want to share their toys. You have to teach them 
to share their things. In many ways, children are very selfish. They are very self-centered. And right when they hit those terrific twos, we can see that they have to have everything their own way. They have to do everything on their own. You want to talk about dependence? Look at independence. Look at the declaration of independence that comes from our children as soon as they can walk. Leave me alone. Just saying. They don't always listen. They don't always obey. This is why we resort to the Board of Education. So in our text, Jesus is not using this child because this child is a model for the disciples to follow. Rather, the point of comparison here is the insignificance of the child on the honor scale. This child has no power. This child has no status. And in that day, the children had very few rights and protections either. But a child is always dependent, vulnerable, entirely subject to the authorities in his life. And so here in our text, Jesus uses this child to represent those who are lowly, those who are needy, and oftentimes those who are neglected. Lowly and needy and oftentimes neglected. And by doing this, Jesus is showing the disciples that if any one of them truly wants to be great, then he needs to serve the people that are looked upon as insignificant in the eyes of the world. And notice how this just opens up the teaching of God's word. All through the Bible, all through the Old Testament, God has always expressed a very special concern for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the stranger. And it's not just in the Old Testament, but James. In James chapter 1 verse 27 says that this is the very essence of true religion. He says pure An undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And it's not, of course, just widows and just orphans, because remember, the scope of our service is very broad. It's all-encompassing. But the issue is that by nature, we gravitate toward the rich, and it's easy to neglect the poor. We gravitate towards those who are strong, and it's easy to neglect the weak. And the whole point here is that the reason that Jesus Christ is so great is that he is an exalted king who left the realms of glory to come into this world, to give up his riches, to become poor, that he might save us who are poor and needy, and that we, in turn, might become rich. This is actually the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's just showing the disciples that they actually have it exactly backwards. Notice that in our text, Jesus doesn't just give them a lecture. This is not a speech. This is not a sermon. Instead, he gives them a picture. He gives them an example. He doesn't just take the child and put him in the midst like uh, an object lesson. Here's the model. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, I'm the model. So he doesn't just put the child in the midst, but Mark says that he took him up into his own arms. Why why did he do that? He puts the child down, and then he picks the child up and puts him in his own arms. And you can see him sort of swaying back and forth like this. 
So that right there, as Jesus is speaking, he is holding that helpless, needy, and yes, dare I say, sometimes inconvenient little child in his own arms. Now, one message here, and this is, um, this is a valid message because it's the gospel applied to this message. One message here is that you and I are just like that little child. You and I are helpless and defenseless. When it comes to spiritual things, we cannot help ourselves. And so Jesus, rather than leaving us to ourselves, he comes, he picks us up, and he holds us in his arms. He provides for us and for all of our needs. He loves us so much that he's willing to lay down his life for us. He lays down his life so that we can live. He speaks to us. He tells us that our sins are forgiven. He tells us that now he can wash us and cleanse us and bring us into his home, into his own family. He tells us that we belong to him. He feeds us at his own table. And no matter what we have to go through, he also says that he'll always be there for us. He will defend us. He will protect us. We never have anything to fear. So that's one message here. Jesus takes up the little ones in his arms, and we are those little ones. The other message is that the disciples need to follow his example in real, practical, and tangible ways. Notice that Jesus loves the poor and needy in such a way that he identifies himself with them. Notice that. Jesus loves the lowly and the needy, so much that he identifies himself with them. He says, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This statement is very profound. It makes us realize that because Jesus identifies with the outcasts of this world, the best way to serve the Lord Jesus Christ is to serve the outcasts of this world. When we feed and clothe, when we visit people, when we minister to their needs, the people who are down and out, we feed, we clothe, we visit, we minister to Jesus Christ himself. So right here, the disciples are being challenged. They're being challenged, uh, and we're being challenged. Where is their focus? What is the aim of all of their service? Are they serving for the glory of God or for their own self-promotion? Are they serving the real and tangible needs of real people that God is bringing into their lives? Or do they walk right past them? Do they look right over them? Do they neglect them and ignore them and despise them? Well, congregation, this is a question that all of us need to ask. These are not just questions for elders and deacons and those who may or may not be officers of the church. These are questions for every member of the body of Christ. And they're not just questions that you should ask about yourself, although you should. What's the aim of your service? What's the motive behind everything you do in the church and in the world? But these are also questions that you should ask about those who are aspiring to leadership around you. There will be men who are aspiring to leadership in this church, and these are questions that we need to ask about them. And don't forget... These are also questions that you need to be asking about the current leadership as well. I'm not excluded from any of this. 
These are questions you should ask about the elders and deacons who are right now serving Church of the King. Do you see us serving with this kind of willing and humble and self-sacrificial love? Do you see us willing to condescend to meet the needs of other people? Do you see us as those who are willing to give up our time and use our resources to visit the sick, to support the weak, and do the work of Jesus Christ? If you do, then praise God. Praise God. If you don't, then hopefully this message will be the first step in being that great reminder that we all need. So congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the Lord teach us the same lesson that he taught his disciples on this very day, that we who desire to be great in the kingdom of God must become the last, and we must become the servants of all. Amen.